We're now officially a third of the way through the course. And by the end of the week, we'll be halfway through the course. Wow! Which means we have an exam coming up this week. Boo! Right? I I knew that was coming. Um, But before the exam, there's a couple things for today. There is an article review that's due today. I know I've had one submission on it. You can submit them on D2L. If you've got them, you can turn them in after class as well as fine. Um, And then there are two quizzes. The iTunes quiz covering the pictures from May 20th through the 31st of May. Or sorry, yeah, 30th of May. Sorry, not the 31st. 31st will be on the next one. So through the 30th of May. And then the second quiz on chapters 2 and 3, those are all due today, so as long as you complete those before 6 o'clock tomorrow. Um, And then I will have a bunch of stuff back for you tomorrow. Um, Homework 4, homework 3, I gave out. Homework 4, I've got to give you here. That means we're halfway through the homeworks already, too, then, as I give you number 4. Yes, ma'am? Yes. Um, I'll be asking for them probably the beginning of next week. Okay. I'll probably ask for them two more, um, two more times. Here you go, I sir. Sure. No. No. Just keep keep what you got in there. Okay. Just put the new height, the height of your new object in there for you. Just keep keep okay. what keep what so you got though. Yeah, keep the, whatever you use for that original observation, leave that. Because if you change your object again for some reason, yeah. then you just, just change the height of it is fine. But yeah, I'll be asking for those. Probably I'll ask for them again next Monday. There's a whole bu- I've got like five things scheduled to be due next Monday. So it's a whole, bu- a whole bunch of little things. So, well, one homework assignment, turning in solar observations. There's a couple others, a quiz that'll be due. And there's like five or five little things. So I'm seeing if I can move one of them, one or two of them around a day. But there's a whole bunch of stuff coming up. But the big one will be the exam. Second exam will be on uh, Wednesday. And I do have your other ones to give back to you. And Kevin, Daryl, sir, Laura, and Liz. There you go. And I'm going to try something different on these. Um, Typically in my regular semester class, I do give the opportunity to drop an exam and do a separate project. I don't see that working quite as well because, you know, the class is ending in three weeks, so it doesn't give you a lot of time to do a second project, another project in addition. Now, not that you don't want to. I have another thing that I'm going to do. (laughs) That's, I mean, I do, it's it's more of a big, you know, artistic project, but I just don't think there's the time. So I was going to give you the option instead of doing exam corrections for partial credit. So if you want to go through the exam and correct the answers. So write out, you know, number one. You know, you missed number one was a true-false, right? I've got to get an exam here. We started with the true-false. So if you want to go ahead and tell me and you said it was false and it was true or vice versa. And then write me, especially on the true-false, give me a sentence as to why it was wrong. In fact, in all of them, give me at least a sentence as to why you were wrong. And then I'll go ahead and if you missed, you know, 10 points on the exam, you can earn back up to 5. So you can get half your credit back. So if you missed, the, you know, the, the worse you did on the exam, the more that can help you, but the more work you got to do too, because the more questions you missed. If you only missed a few, you can, do that. you can do that. So you'll have that option. That is one of those things that I have scheduled right now for next week, because I wanted to give you the weekend to look at them. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that. We should have everybody back here tomorrow. We should have all five, and I'll go over that. But that's one thing I was thinking of doing this. First of all, it'll help you more for the final, even if you didn't do good and you don't want to do that, don't go shredding your exams. Save them until after the class is over because your final exam is cumulative, but half of it comes from these first four exams. So I take questions right from here. I may modify some of them slightly. So that's why I'm thinking this correction thing might help you because then you'll have everything corrected and ready to study for the final because you'll want to study your first four exams and the last couple chapters after the last exam. So. If you want to open that, I'll go over that a little. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, tomorrow when I should have everybody back here. But that would not be due until probably the 10th or the 11th. I might push it off a day or something just to give you some time to, to look at them. And I'm going to do that instead of the, as Liz has been asking, drop an, can we drop an exam, right? You know. Instead of doing that, what I'll do is I'm going to do the, give you a chance to make them up in, in that way. Of course, it's completely optional. If you don't want to, if you're fine with your grade, you can just leave it and it won't, it won't hurt you not doing them. Except that, of course, 
they'll come back up. You'll come back and haunt you on the final. So, so that's what's coming up. Again, a bunch of things today. Don't forget those and get those in, especially the article review. That is 40 points. That's almost an exam grade in itself. So you don't want to not do that and skip it. And I do need those in by 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock tomorrow so they're not, not late. So if you have them now or you drop them off in my mailbox um, downstairs, if you're going to drop off a paper copy, if you're doing that later today here, and going to bring in a paper copy. If not, submit it on D2L and I'll get it. And I'll hopefully get a chance to have everything else. I've got the homeworks. I've got a couple of homeworks to, to, uh, homework to turn back to you. Maybe two homeworks because one's due tomorrow. That's not due till tomorrow. So we won't have a homework to give back. So a homework and a lab and a couple other things to give back to you. Questions? I know, it's my big class for questions. Okay. All right. Picture of the day for today. We've got a perfectly appropriate picture for exactly where we are talking in the solar system. We, I think I showed you the first picture of Mars last time and said we'll talk about that on Monday. And sure enough, the photo of the day people actually put up a picture of the Curiosity rover here on Mars. Well, Curiosity ro rover looking from underneath it actually, you're looking at the wheels. So the wheels of the rover here, you can actually see some of the tracks as to where it's moved on the surface of Mars. Uh, it's been there for over a year, about a year now that it landed. Landed last summer and very complicated landing as it had to be done all, had to be all pre-planned exactly how this was going to work and how the parachute was going to work to land it and how everything was going to uh, behave on it because you can't control it directly from Earth. It takes light at the closest approach of Earth and Mars, it takes light four minutes to get between the two. Radio signals travel at the speed of light. So if we want to send a signal to the rover to do something and wait for a response to come back that yes, it did it, that takes at least eight minutes. And that's when they're at their closest. When Mars is at its furthest away, that can take about 25 minutes to get a response back that yes, the rover did what you wanted it to do. So one of the reasons that that landing was so difficult is that it all had to be pre-planned and by the time we, by the time it was, as it was going on, you know, we didn't know about it till minutes later. So it was going through all of this uh, very complex process to land the rover, but we didn't know about it or whether it was successful. It's just kind of keeping your fingers crossed, watching and hoping that everything was right. And then finding out that yes, everything did work out good and now the rover is there exploring. Um, it moves extremely slow by any standards. I mean, you can walk much faster than it's moving around Mars. Again, for the same reason, if it gets stuck, can't call AAA out there to tow it out, right? If, it's stuck, if it gets stuck, as one of, the, the, one of the earlier rovers did, it got stuck somewhere and it couldn't move and finally drained its batteries. So moves very slow just partially for that reason that you, first of all, the communication lag, you know, it's like being able to, driving and having a couple second lag between the light getting from the car in front of you. So if you had a five second lag between you and the car in front of you, not knowing where it was for the last five seconds, would make for a lot of accidents. Same thing on Mars except we're talking about many minutes. So moves extremely slow for that reason. So it'll travel, you know, in a day it might travel the length of a football field or so. But exploring, uh, looking primarily for studying Mars and looking for evidence possibly that there's ever been any kind of, you know, li has there been, been, been any kind of, intel not intelligent life, but any kind of small life on Mars. We'd certainly have known by now if there were any great civilizations on Mars. We would have been able to find evidence of that. But microbes, something very tiny, microscopic life, could still exist there either currently or in a fossilized form. And that's one of the things that the rover is studying. And it's actually heading off in the distance. You can see the mountain up there off in the distance. That's the general direction it's heading. And will slowly work its way that direction and it's supposed to explore around and part of that mountain. Curiosity on Mars. No questions? No questions? Already? Well, we'll go back to Mars. Then we'll go from Mars to Mars. So we did that. Per the time, so they timed that just right. And we were looking at, I was just showed you the first picture of Mars and said we'd start here. So there's a full-size view of Mars looking at the entire object. Um, we see a number of different features on it. Mars actually has volcanoes on it and you see a couple of those off to the side here. So a couple of these very large volcanoes uh, dwarf anything you have here on Earth, any kind of mountain. 
make Mount Everest seem like a little hill? That's how large some of these volcanoes actually are. They're tremendous in size. And we also see that there's very few craters over in that area. It's been flooded recently astronomically speaking, meaning in the last couple of billion years it's been flooded since the heaviest cratering time occurred. We also see in some of the areas there are some more craters. You do see craters more in some of the regions up here down to the south. You don't see very well here but there are actually more craters towards the southern section. And showing that some of the areas further away from the volcanoes are much older and closer to moon-like uh, surfaces. There's also a great valley, uh, Valles Marineris, a great valley that stretches across the surface of Mars. Um, not a canyon like the Grand Canyon uh, on Earth. Grand Canyon is formed by running water. That's not how this was formed. This is actually more of a tectonic feature, plate tectonics. So plates starting to move on Mars and separating. So it's actually closer to uh, the Rift Valley of Eastern Africa. If you ever look at the map of Eastern Africa, it's got a lot of big long lakes. The, the continent is separating. The eastern part of Africa is separating away from the western portion. And if we could come back in millions of years, a couple million years, 10 million years, you'd actually have it, it would be full, more fully separated. It's slowly going on, but we're talking you know, things that are moving you know, centimeters per year. So very, very small amounts. But over time, that slowly happens. This might have been where Mars started to undergo plate tectonics and then cooled off much too quickly to be able to continue it. So it might have actually been the start of plate features on Mars. In terms of how big this is, the Grand Canyon, if you look at one of these little tiny parts out to the side, that would be like the Grand Canyon. This entire thing would stretch from you know, Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. So it would stretch across the entire United States. That's how large this is. So this is a very large global feature on the surface of Mars. Now I mentioned the volcanoes and I think my next one is, yep, there's the largest volcano that exists in the solar system, Olympus Mons. 700 kilometers in diameter. So if you wanted to set that in the middle of Pennsylvania, it would easily cover the entire state. You know, from edge to edge, you'd easily, you'd be expanding out into New Jersey, into Ohio, up to New York, down into Maryland. You'd easily cover all of that. So that would easily cover the entire state of Pennsylvania. The caldera or the, caldera or the opening at the top up here where the lava would flow out is about 80 kilometers. Not that big, but the size of a small state. You know, Connecticut, Rhode Island would fit within that section. So that's how, giving an idea of how big this volcano is. 25 kilometers high. Uh, 25 kilometers would be about, what, about 20, 18 or so miles high. Well, about 15 miles high. About 15 miles high. So very, very high up into the, up into the atmosphere of Mars. So dwarfing anything that we have here, the largest mountains on Earth don't begin to be compared to it. It's several times the size of even things like Mount Everest. The other, three, the other three major Martian volcanoes are a little bit smaller than this, but not much. They still dwarf anything that we have here on Earth. Part of that is because of the lack of plate movement on Mars, on the Earth. Things like the, the Hawaiian volcanoes, which are very similar in type to the Olympus Mons, very similar type of volcanoes. Well, the Pacific plate is moving. So it slowly moves, meaning that the one Hawaiian volcano is here right now. The active volcano is in Hawaii, the large island, off to the east. But if you could go back millions of years, Hawaii wasn't there. The island of Hawaii, the other islands would have been volcanically active. And that's that spot in the Earth's crust that is constantly flowing up the lava is slowly moving. If you want to wait a few million years, there'll be another Hawaiian island forming. Right? Investment opportunity, right? You know, buy, buy land for the future. You've got millions of years to wait, but you know, there's new Hawaiian Island will be coming up, will be coming up there, and there's actually underwater volcanoes off to the east of Hawaii. Again, we're talking of things that are moving centimeters per year. We need millions of years to be able to see this. But Mars didn't have that. So that hot spot in the crust where the, where the lava was coming up stayed in the same spot for millions and bil a billion years. Constantly putting lava out in the same spot, growing this volcano to an incredibly large size. So much larger than anything that we get here on the Earth.
And then just some evidence of water. Is there water on Mars? No liquid water now. There is no liquid water and cannot be. The atmosphere of Mars is much too thin to be able to allow water to be present in a liquid form. But we do see evidence of some kinds of flows that have occurred in the past. You know, no water on them now, but perhaps there was water flowing on Mars billions of years ago. If you look at this crater, was the surface kind of liquidy or muddy when that hit? Doesn't look nice and sharp like the ones we looked at the moon. It looks like somebody threw a big rock into a mud puddle and everything just kind of splattered over there. You notice how irregular it just looks like a big splash of mud going around. So perhaps the surface was more liquid at the time when that impact occurred. So wouldn't have been fully liquid, but more of a big muddy area and it would have splashed out a little bit more like that. So a lot of the craters on Mars were wiped out between any kind of water activity and the volcanic activity. But some of the areas where there was less uh, volcanic activity and where it was drier, they still, exi- they still exist. All right, so I think that was everything I had for Mars. Again, we're just getting a quick overview of each of, each of these. So we'll jump into Chapter 7, which is on the larger planets, the Jovian planets. Here's a nice image of Jupiter. This would be what you'd see through a small telescope. Uh, little, this is actually a little bit better than what Galileo would have seen with his telescope. Because you're actually starting to see Jupiter here. And you can actually get some idea that there's actually different colors. There's actually some kind of structure on Jupiter that you have darker areas and lighter areas. We'll see some nicer pictures of that coming up. Galileo couldn't distinguish those. He could only see that there was a little disk there, but it would have been a lot smaller and you only would have seen just one color. You wouldn't have seen that there was a range of colors on the, on the planet. What Galileo did see was the satellites. So three of the satellites shown here orbiting around Jupiter. So if you were to look at this and come back a couple hours later, a couple days later, and look at them, you'd find that the pattern had changed. That they're in the process of moving around Jupiter, so they might go out further to this side. Then as they're coming back, they'll go around and cross the other side of Jupiter. And you can watch that pattern and determine how fast each of them is orbiting. That's what Galileo saw. That was the first uh, sign of objects that orbited something other than the Earth. First time we saw anything that orbited something other than the Earth, for sure, right? We've seen the sun, we've seen the sun, we know the sun isn't orbiting the Earth, but they didn't know that at the time. This was the first time we saw something for sure that it was possible for objects, for Jupiter to orbit either the sun or the Earth, whichever you believed, and still have something orbiting around it. Now a little bit closer, get a little bit nicer imager from image uh, from the Pioneer or the Voyager spacecraft that actually flew out to Jupiter. Well, if we get out there, we get much better images. We're certainly a lot closer to Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is at its closest about four astronomical units away from the Earth. That's about four times the average Earth-Sun distance. So quite far away, Jupiter is not near as big as the Sun, so it looks a lot smaller. When we look at it here, we saw some of this structuring when we were looking at the previous little tiny image. Now we're starting to see a lot more detail to it. Very dark areas, very light areas, some kind of swirling structures. The great red spot, a large storm on Jupiter that's been observed now continuously probably for at least a few hundred years. Again, Galileo was not able to see this. He didn't have enough detail, enough resolution in his telescope to be able to see all this fine detail. But it's been observed since we had larger telescopes for hundreds of years and some other little type storms that are present, present there. And you can think of the great red spot as sort of a giant hurricane on the, surface of, on the surface in the atmosphere of Jupiter, but one that instead of lasting for a few weeks or a month maybe for some of the hurricanes on Earth from the time they developed, has lasted for hundreds of years. Saturn. Not near as pretty as Jupiter. Ignoring the rings. Rings make it look beautiful, right? Rings make it look pretty. Surface features, atmospheric features, don't look near as pretty. You've got some structures, but not near as much as you have on Jupiter. Saturn is twice as far away from the sun, twice as far away from the sun, a lot colder. And therefore, all of the atmospheric features that we look at on Jupiter are buried down under the atmosphere of Saturn. 
So there's a lot more haze, a lot more uh, covering on top of it that doesn't really allow us to see the structure, which is there. If you could dig down into Saturn, it really looks a lot like Jupiter. But because it's so much colder, a lot of that is hidden from us. Of course, the big thing that stands out with Saturn is its rings. And we'll look at the rings in a little bit more detail in uh, the rest of chapter 8 when we come back and look at the rings and the moons in a little more detail. But definitely the rings stand out. Uh, all of the Jovian planets have rings, but only Saturn has this really beautiful set of rings. They stand out very easy to see even through a small telescope. So they were able to be picked out. A Galileo could see that there was something there, that there was the planet in the middle and there was a big blob over here and a big blob over here. But it wasn't for a few decades after the time of Galileo when telescopes got large enough to be able to really see what, we were, what was actually there, that it was actually a set of rings. Uranus, very bland, right? Not, not a lot to see there. Uh, looks very uh, greenish blue. That's because of the composition of the atmosphere. It's made up of methane. A lot of methane in the atmosphere. Methane is very good at absorbing red light. So you think about that. White light from the sun goes out to the planet, strikes it. The methane sucks up all the red light. What gets bounced back to you? The blues and the greens, the other, the shorter wavelength light. They come back, so it makes it look green, greenish blue, because the planet likes all the red light. All the red light gets absorbed by the, by the atmosphere. You'll also see that similar to Saturn, again, everything is buried down below it. We don't see a lot of detail in the atmosphere because we're getting so much colder. Uranus is about twice as far away as Saturn was. So Saturn was twice as far as Jupiter. Uranus is twice as far away as Saturn. So we're getting further and further out. Neptune, again, very bluish green. We're starting to get out cold enough that we're actually starting to see some features again. So Neptune had a great dark spot that Voyager 2 found in the late 1980s when it flew by. So a large storm like that of Jupiter, which seems to have disappeared recently. Now with the great red spot, we don't know how long it's been there. We know that when we first observed it, uh, likely in the late, late 16 late 1600s and for sure in the eight, by the eight, seven, late 1700s and 1800s we were able to see it and study it continuously but we don't know how long it was there. Was it there for 10 years before? 100? 1,000? 10,000? Unless we can take a telescope back in time we have no way to tell whether the great red spot was there or how long will it last? Will it be there 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now? Things I can't, I can't tell you. But we do know on Neptune that this storm that was there, we know it was there when Voyager went in 1989, but we don't know how long it'll last. It's gone. How long was it there before that? Was it there for 100 years or was it there for 20 or 30 years? Some of these features we're still trying to study and learn about. Um, and Uranus and Neptune are two of the planets that we know the least about. We've only visited each of them once. And those both in just a quick flyby, meaning we flew by the planet, took some pictures, and left. So we had a couple days while the spacecraft was close to the planet to get a lot of nice pictures. But that's all we have. We can't go back and look at it again. Um, Jupiter and Saturn we've actually sent orbiters to. So we've had spacecraft, in fact Cassini is currently orbiting Saturn. And the Galileo spacecraft was orbiting Jupiter and gave us a lot of detail and the ability to actually come back and look at something again. Right? You, miss, you miss something, you want to see something on that great dark spot and you missed it. Well, if your spacecraft is now millions of miles heading away, you're not going to get another good picture of it. Right? You're heading the wrong direction and you don't have the kind of power to say turn around and come back, especially when you're moving at very, very fast speeds. When you're in orbit, you're able to do that. You're able to keep look, go back and look at something again. Now looking at the atmosphere of Jupiter, we saw that there were light and dark colors. They're actually at different levels. You're not seeing a flat surface of Jupiter. You're seeing only the atmosphere. You're seeing high pressure zones in the brighter ones and low pressure belts. So some of this is much higher up above. Some of it is much lower down. So you have a, you have a distinction between those belts and zones. They're not nice and smooth. They're actually varied in how far they are away from the surface of the, of the planet itself. So just kind of a simple model there looking at it, just to, uh, the different structures that we see. When we look up here, 
There's the, here's the darker belt, a dark belt here, a lighter zone, a lighter zone up above it. So we're seeing different structures, like we see high and low pressure systems on the Earth. Right? We have high pressure. They tend to be, what, circular, right? You see the circular swirling high pressure storms, circular low pressure storms, you know, and, uh, hurricane. On Jupiter, Jupiter rotates so quickly that those get stretched out. So the high pressure, instead of being in just one location on the planet, on a slowly rotating planet like the Earth, are actually stretched across the entire planet. So you actually have a high pressure area stretches around the entire planet and followed by a low pressure area stretched around the planet and again over and over again. Now there's the great red spot. Again I mentioned that before. Uh, there's a picture of the Earth to scale. Just to give you an idea of scale, how big this great red spot is. That you could fit the Earth within it and have some room to spare. So I'll put the Earth in there. We'd fit within that one rather easily. It rotates like a great uh, hurricane in the atmosphere of Jupiter. But it's been there for a long, long time. We've seen it as early as the late 1600s. And have been able to study it pretty much continuously for the last 150 or so years. And it's been there and it's been pretty much the same. It has not changed a lot. Again, we don't know how long that will last. If we could come back in a thousand years, would the great red spot still be there? Do these last, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years? Something we really cannot know. But you see around it all the great swirls. So all the great, all the atmosphere of Jupiter and all the different swirling patterns that you get around that hurricane, all the turbulence that's associated with that. So you see a lot of detailed structure in the atmosphere itself. But very, very large, again, the size of the Earth in terms of how big this red spot actually is. Uh, looking at the other ones, again, there's a couple more pictures of Saturn. Saturn and Jupiter are very similar in terms of composition, what they're made up of. Except that Saturn is colder and it has a thicker atmosphere. So the features get, uh, get buried below kind of a haze. So when you're looking through this big thick haze, looking through almost a fog, you don't see all the nice structure that you normally see, uh, you'd normally see on Jupiter. The structures are otherwise the same. They're just buried down, deep down in the atmosphere, whereas Jupiter's are closer to the, what we see as the surface. Saturn's are buried much further down. Question, I'm sorry. Yell for me if I don't. How many elements are between this going to actually touched How many have we actually landed, landed something on? Well, not something, but like landed people. Landed people on? Yeah. The only other object we've landed people on is the moon. So in terms of others, we've actually landed spacecraft on one of the moons of Saturn. Robotic spacecraft to send images back from that. Mars and Venus are the only other objects that have ever been landed on successfully. So we have never actually landed. You know, no, no one has gone out as far as that. There are plans to send people to Mars, to actually land you know, a colony on Mars. That hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, there's plans for it, but it hasn't gone anywhere officially yet. All right, so Saturn, Uranus, try to measure its rotation. Um, it gets hard to try to measure these. You're, again, you're looking at the atmosphere. You're not really measuring the rotation of the planet. But Uranus rotates very quickly, just like the, two, uh, the other two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter rotates in a little bit less than 10 hours. Saturn in a little bit more than 10 hours. Uranus is. What is it now? 13, 14 hours or so it takes to orbit around, or spin around once on its axis. Still very, very quick, much quicker than the Earth. All of the Jovian planets move a lot faster. But when you can see some idea of a storm, it's one way to get you to watch, for example, this storm here just coming around. Watch it as it comes around and time how long that takes. Gives you an idea of how long it would take to make a full cycle of Neptune or Uranus and gives a way to actually measure the rotational rates. Not something we can do necessarily very easily from the Earth. You need a lot of detail to be able to see that. Neptune, again, I mentioned the great dark spot. There it is. Uh, one of the Voyager pictures. Here it is, much larger. And 
with, when viewed with the Hubble Space Telescope now, it seems to have disappeared. So we don't have a good idea, again, of how long these storms last. We know how long they last on the Earth. We've got you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years of experience with you know, hurricanes. How long do they last? We can tell how long from they form and average how long they last. On Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune, we don't have that. We don't have really any idea of how long these objects actually, how long, how long they actually will, will last. So I can't tell you whether it'll, you know, whether it was there for a hundred years before or whether it formed, you know, in the mid 1990s. Might have lasted only a few years. Might have lasted hundreds of years. Again, with a lot of these, there's just no way, no simple way to tell how, how long they've been there. All right, and the last of it is looking a little bit about the moons and the rings of the planets and then talking about Pluto and the other objects like Pluto. So we're going to work our way back out again, go back into Jupiter. Io is the innermost of the large satellites of Jupiter. Jupiter has 60 or 70 known moons, large number. Um, Io is the closest of the large ones and one of the ones that Galileo actually observed very close to Jupiter. And if you remember, we talked about the Earth. We talked about the tidal forces, the moon pulling on the Earth. Well, Jupiter does the same thing to Io. But Jupiter's got a lot more gravity than the moon does pulling on the Earth. And Io's a lot smaller. So it actually can physically deform the moon. It can pull it, stretch it out of shape. As it moves around, gravitational forces from the other moons will turn it a little bit and it'll keep stretching. So essentially what happens to the moon is that it gets stretched out of shape a little bit, not deformed as much as I'm trying to show you here. Stretched back, deformed, stretched back. Deformed. And when you do that over a long period of time, if you take a piece of clay that's nice and cold, Play-Doh or something, and you keep kneading it back and forth, it heats up. Right? It gets warmer and softer and easier to work with. Io does the same thing. Io gets so hot inside that it actually becomes volcanically active that the heat from Jupiter's gravity working at it and stretching it has heated up to melt the rock inside Io and makes it the most volcanically active object in the solar system. There's active volcanoes on it right now. Unlike the Martian volcanoes, which we're not, we can actually see volcanic eruptions on, uh, on Io. And we see also no impact craters. The only object in the solar system that has a solid surface where we don't see impact craters. Yeah, we don't see any on Jupiter or Saturn, but they don't have a solid surface. But we saw impact craters on the Moon, on Mercury, the Earth, Mars, Venus, uh, the, satellite, the other satellites of Jupiter, the other satellites of Saturn. We see impacts on them. We see impacts even on the asteroids and other objects. Io is the one where it's so volcanically active, even more so than the Earth, that those, any impact craters that form are quickly wiped out. Europa, next moon out as we move our way through the Galilean satellites, has essentially no craters. It actually has a couple. It's got a little bit more than, than Jupiter. Its surface is uh, pure water, ice frozen out in space, but it's actually a pure water surface and has liquid water below it. So you have a thick crust of ice, many miles thick, you know, tens, hundreds of miles thick. And then below that, you actually have a liquid water ocean. That means that this is one of the best places to look for to possibly think about having life. Right? You've got liquid water. On Earth, one of the things we say for life is that you've got to have liquid water. Right? Kind of hard to have living creatures without some kind of liquid. And here is actually a place where there's liquid water present. That liquid water also, as the tides of Jupiter, Io's a little, Europe is a little bit further away than Io, but it still constantly cracks and breaks the surface. That water would flow up and out and wipe out any um, impact craters. So any craters that were there, but you see some of these interesting patterns where the water has flowed up and then refrozen in very intricate patterns that have formed on, on the surface of Io. Io also has a lot of water on it. In fact, if you take Io and measure out how much water there is on that entire object, it's more than we have on the entire Earth. So Io has more water on it 
total, counting the frozen water and fr uh, the liquid water below it, would have more water than we have in all the oceans, in all the lakes and rivers and streams and everything else. If you took all the water on Earth, Io would have significantly more water because that whole entire outer layer going down many, many miles is all pretty much pure water. We don't have that on, on the Earth. If you go down a few miles below the surface, the water's gone. Right? You get down below the ocean floor, there's not another big ocean underneath it. It's just solid rock when you get down below that. I, Europa has a much, much thicker crust that is almost completely water. Ganymede is the largest uh, moon, actually larger than Mercury, larger than Pluto. And we see similarities to what we see on the moon. You see so on our moon, we see some darker areas, we see some lighter areas. But we're much further out in the solar system. It's a lot colder. So instead of having molten rock flowing, you'd have things like ices flowing. So think of almost a big slushy, uh, slushy material flowing in terms of volcanic activity. Could actually be more of a slushy ice mixture that would then flood out and fill any craters that form. So it wipes out a lot of the craters in some areas and leaves a few behind. But you see some evidence of some kind of flows here where we've zoomed in, there's one region, zoomed in again, zoomed in again to looking at just a few uh, kilometers in size, and you see great flows of material. So perhaps, you know, slushy, watery material that actually has flowed through the surface. A few impacts, so this was a long time ago because we do see some craters on top of it. So likely happened many, several billion years ago. But not so long ago that there's thousands of craters that have obliterated it. If this had occurred very early on, all of that would have been obliterated. So, very interesting features on all of these moons. And then the last one is Callisto, um, the furthest of the, furthest of the Galilean satellites. Again, there's more moons further in, more moons further out. These are the three big large ones that are actually comparable in size to our own moon. We're getting further out, we start to see a lot more craters. So, as we look in this section here, about 100 kilometers in size, Lots of craters scattered around. Uh, still the surface, unlike our moon, it looks like our moon's surface, but there's a lot more ice involved. It's a lot more ice and rock mixture that is involved out here because you're so much further out, so much further away from the sun. You have a lot more icy material in the, on these moons than you have on our own, on our own moon. Now the other, moving out, jumping out a planet, jumping out to Saturn, Titan is the only really large moon of Saturn and it actually has an atmosphere, the only moon with an atmosphere. It's got a thicker atmosphere than the Earth. It's about one and a half times the pressure of the Earth's atmosphere if you were down on the surface of Titan. But it's also got a lot of hazy clouds. So when you look at Titan, all you're seeing is the haziness of the atmosphere. You can't see the surface. You can be about 4,000 kilometers away about 2,500 miles away from it, you still see just a big blob there. Titan actually has been landed on. We've actually, the, one of the objects we mentioned, one of the objects we've actually landed on uh, in the solar system. Uh, the Cassini spacecraft had a lander that went through the atmosphere of Titan, landed on its surface, and was able to send back uh, several images, a number of images, showing, in fact, that you actually have liquid on the surface of Titan as well. Not water, it's much too cold. So even though it's got this thick atmosphere, it's so far away that the temperatures are still several hundred degrees below zero on the surface. So, got a nice atmosphere in terms of atmospheric pressure. It's not all that bad, but you still don't want to go there. And you're not going to go there and visit and take off your spacesuit. It's still going to be way too, uh, way too cold. And uh, no oxygen either. Atmosphere is actually quite similar to ours otherwise. It's a lot of nitrogen. The atmosphere is almost all nitrogen and then a few other elements. But no oxygen, so you couldn't breathe the atmosphere, atmosphere in any case. Did I get a picture of it? Yes, I did. Okay, here's some of the Huygens pictures. Those are both of Titan. The one on the right-hand side might look a lot like the ones of Mars that we looked at. So, not all that different. A lot of the objects in the solar system really don't look all that different from each other. That does not look that different than many of the pictures of Mars that we took. Um, here we're seeing some evidence again of flowing liquids. 
Not water, again, not the temperature. It's not the right temperature to have water. Any water would be long frozen at this temperature. But methane would be a liquid at these much colder temperatures. You could actually have flowing methane in terms of rivers and lakes that have been found on the surface of Titan. So like Europa, one of those areas where could there be some kind of life on Titan? We don't have liquid water, but we have another flowing liquid which could be helpful in forming living organisms. So has anything been found there? Huygens did not have a long enough lifespan to really be able to search for anything. It was designed to land, uh, send a number of pictures back to the main spacecraft before it was shut, before it was shut down. It didn't have its own source of, of power. Uh, because you're so far away from the sun, you don't have a lot of solar power. And especially being under that haze, it just didn't have the uh, sufficient power to last for very long or to be able to transmit directly back to the Earth. We skipped a planet. We skipped Uranus. We're out to Neptune. Uh, Triton, not Titan, Triton, uh, easy enough to confuse. Triton is the next large satellite. Um, Uranus has a couple of satellites. Uh, that are good size, but they're all significantly smaller. And if you add all of its major five satellites up together, you still get a little bit less than the size of our moon. So much smaller there. Triton is, again, comparable to the size of our moon. It's in a backwards orbit, retrograde orbit, meaning it orbits backwards. If you look down from the Earth's north pole on the solar system, everything orbits around. Now there's the sun. Everything orbits around counterclockwise. So Mercury, Venus, Earth, and the Earth, the Moon, the Moon is moving. Everything's moving in the same direction, going around counterclockwise. Triton is the one large object in the solar system that actually goes the other way. So, well, if we go out to the outer, if this is, skip a bunch of space there, and there's Neptune. Neptune's orbiting around this way. It's going around counterclockwise. But the Moon around it is actually moving clockwise. It's going backwards which might tell us something about the early history of this. Perhaps there was some kind of interaction, some sort of collision between large objects when the solar system was forming that actually caused this to go in the opposite direction. Triton, like Io, has very few craters on it. That means its surface must be active, relatively active. And we actually see things like geysers. Not geysers of hot water like Yellowstone Park, right? Uh, much colder. Now we're not only you know, at Jupiter's distance, five times the Earth from the Sun, or Saturn's distance, 10 times. Neptune's 30 times far away. So it's very cold. The geysers are actually nitrogen. So the nitrogen gas freezes out of the atmosphere. Give you an idea of how cold it is. You know, liquid nitrogen is pretty darn cold temperatures. So the nitrogen actually freezes out of the atmosphere on Triton. And then when the sun warms it up, you get some sunlight out there. We'll warm it up and get it up above. It'll actually vaporize and throw a geyser out. So shoot material up out into around Triton and then cover up any kind of craters that have formed. But that's actually helped with some of the surface features that we see as, as well. You do, again, you get some sort of frozen areas. It almost looks like a large impact basin there that has frozen. You're talking a couple hundred kilometers across, hundreds of hundred miles across in terms of size, how big that object actually is. And it's been frozen. It's been flooded in by liquids. Again, liquids are not, when we get this far out in the solar system, generally meaning water. It could be things like liquid nitrogen, liquid methane, liquid ammonia when you get this far out in the solar system. It is significantly colder. Now rings, I said I'd come back to Saturn's rings and show you a little bit more about those. Um, Saturn's rings is a very complicated ring system. If you've ever seen it through a telescope, looks nice and pretty surrounding the planet. If you look at it in more detail, you really see a lot of structure to the rings. It's not just a big stretch of particles around, a big disk around the planet. It's actually got many, many rings within it. It's got a larger ring here, a couple larger rings. Little tiny divisions here where there's many fewer particles. This is the Cassini division, uh, very right in the middle there. That's actually visible through a relatively, uh, relatively small telescopes. You can see that there's a bright ring, a gap, and another bright ring. But when you look at it in great detail, you can see that there's a whole bunch of rings there. Now, all of the planets have ring systems, all of the Jovian planets. Jupiter does, Saturn, 
Of course, we're seeing here Uranus and Neptune also have ring systems that are visible. The ring particles are actually relatively small. You're talking about little, you can be talking about little dust-sized uh, dust particles, little balls of ice, up to things maybe a meter or so in size, so you know, maybe the size of a person. You don't have any big, large particles. So you can think of these as many millions of little moons orbiting around Saturn, each orbiting around it individually. Let me see. Jupiter has a ring, not near as big as the, as the others, um, as Saturn's that we were looking at. A nice, a very thin ring of, of material that does orbit around it. But that was discovered by the Voyager spacecraft in the late 1970s when it flew by Jupiter. Jupiter was actually the third planet found to have a ring. Saturn's were found earliest. Then Uranus's were found. They're a little bit more prominent, and I'll talk about those in a minute. Jupiter's were found, and then Neptune's were found and pretty much predicted. Now that we'd seen rings around Saturn and Uranus and Jupiter, when the Voyager spacecraft got to Neptune, it was certainly something that people were looking for. If these other ones had not been found, we might not have been looking for them. We might not have found the rings of Neptune. But all of the planets do have, all of the Jovian planets do have some kind of ring system, just not near as prominent as Saturn's. Here's Uranus's. Very comple complex rings, very narrow rings too. There's several different ones, five primary rings that were originally discovered and several others that have been uh, found later. Very, very narrow. Particles are much more confined. This is zooming in greatly on the thickest of the rings. And again, within it you see all sorts of structure. It's not nice and smooth. There are some parts where there's more ring particles and some parts where there are significantly less. Did I do... <coughs> Neptune has five different rings. Some of them are narrow, some of them are wide, some of them are not complete. So Neptune actually has some rings that are particles are concentrated. If you looked around the planet, you'd have particles concentrated here, and then you'd have gaps. So you'd have actually the particles in the rings are not complete. So you have gaps in the rings, or you just have arcs as part of the rings on some of them. So those were found again by uh, Voyager 2 when it flew past Neptune in the late 1980s. But again, we knew to look for those because we'd seen them around all the other planets. Yes, sir? So, so in other words, these particles just keep floating around in there. I guess what, like yep. the, the, the magnetism? Not, not magnetism, gravity. The gravity? Gravity, gravity yep. there. there. Think of all the satellites we got around the Earth. These are all kinds of little satellites. They're just grouped in, into rings. So, but there are a whole bunch of little satellites. But they're, they're little tiny things. You know, there might be some piece this big. You know, put across. That might be about the size of some of these ring particles. Would be similar. But they're just a whole bunch of little moons. Gravity just keeps them orbiting and they'll, they'll remain there. They would slowly drift off, except for the fact that you get a lot of bigger moons that like to orbit right around these rings and focus the particles. In fact, they're called shepherding satellites. They focus the, focus the positions of the moons and focus the position of all these, keep these rings together. And we actually see those in a number of the different, a number of the, especially in Uranus is very well known for them because its rings are so nice and tightly defined. But yeah, they're just all, just all gravity, just pulling, they're just orbiting, constantly orbiting. All right, on to Pluto. Pluto discovered in 1930, discovered after an extensive search of the sky looking for a planet out there. Um, Neptune was discovered similarly, but Neptune was very easy to find. Uh, when we discovered Uranus in the late 1700s, uh, Newton's gravity was relatively new and Uranus wasn't quite following it. It wasn't moving the way it was supposed to. So astronomers made calculations and said, well maybe if there's another planet out there beyond Uranus, its gravity could affect the orbit and we can make a prediction as to where it would be. And sure enough, Neptune was found about where they looked. So, worked so well that when Neptune didn't quite behave the way they thought it was supposed to, that they said, great, now there's another planet out there. And we'll search for another one. We'll do the calculations and we'll look there and we'll find this planet. No such luck. Essentially, it took many years searching, 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 in fact, for decades trying to find Pluto. Pluto likely would, not, would have been found eventually, 
but might not have been found you know, until recently if it had not been for this extensive search looking for a planet that was affecting the orbits of Uranus and Neptune. Turns out that we just didn't have enough knowledge and enough understanding of the mass of these two objects. We didn't really know their masses, so we didn't know exactly how they were interacting with each other. So there really weren't any deviations. There weren't any problems with the orbits. But nonetheless, Pluto was discovered and became the ninth planet in 1930. And got to be a planet for, what, about a little over about 75 years. And after that point, it was uh, removed. And I'll talk about that here in just a couple of minutes. This is a nice picture of Pluto. Uh, This looks like a Hubble Space Telescope image. Can you see the great detail? No? Right? You can see a little bit. You can see there's some lighter areas and darker areas. But it's a very blurry image. That's the best we can get from the Earth. It's so far away and it's so small. Now, that's comparable to, you know, some of our early pictures of Jupiter. Remember that early picture of Jupiter I showed you when we started the Jovian planets? You could see some little structures on its surface, but you couldn't see the detail. That's about where we are with Pluto right now. But there is a spacecraft on its way to Pluto. The New Horizons spacecraft is on its way, arrives in 2015. So it's a little over halfway there. It's out past past the orbit of Uranus now, I believe, and heading towards Pluto and will fly by Pluto in in two years. So in that case, we'll go from looking at something like this to actually being able to have good high-resolution images of the surface. It's not going into orbit. It's traveling way too fast to slow it down and get it into an orbit. But it's going to fly by and we'll get a couple of images for those day, that couple of days while it flies by Pluto. So we'll get to see at least some portion of Pluto's surface in much more detail than we've ever had before. Again, this is about how good we can study Pluto from Earth. We're going to have much more than that if everything goes well for the next two years with the New Horizons. Pluto actually has a moon, more than one moon, several moons. Um, This is the first picture where it was discovered on the left-hand side. See Pluto there, and you can see there's this little extra blob off to the upper side of it. That would be, that's the Pluto Charon that was found. It's, Pluto is a little bit smaller than our moon, but Charon is almost as big as Pluto. About a sixth the size, but, you know, comparable. And just much in the way that The Earth and the Moon are similar in size. Yeah, the Earth's a lot bigger than the Moon, but they're comparable. When we looked at the Earth, if you look at the Earth and the Moon, you've got something like this. Not distance to scale, but size to scale. Pluto and Charon are about like that. Typically, when you look at the other objects, like Jupiter, you're talking more like that. Even those very large moons, there's some that are bigger than our own Moon, but Jupiter is so much larger that to scale, They're very, very tiny. They're just little tiny dots by comparison. Pluto and its moon are much more comparable to the Earth and our moon. So it's almost like a double planet, or a double dwarf planet in this case, where there are two objects orbiting around each other and both tidally locked to each other. So I mentioned this when we talked about the tides on the moon, how the Earth was slowing down and how eventually If you're on the right side of the Earth, you'd be able to see the moon. And if you're on the other side of the Earth, you'd never see the moon. Pluto already got there. Pluto being much smaller has already been slowed down to that effect that one side of Pluto always faces Charon and one side of Charon always faces Pluto. So if you live here on Pluto, you get to see the moon all the time. If you live here, as far as you're concerned, that moon doesn't exist. Unless you make the trip around it to see it, you're not going to be able to see that moon. So they're completely locked. There's also two others. There's two others, Nix and Hydra, that were discovered almost a decade ago now. And in fact, that makes three. There's actually now two more that have been found as well that have not been named. So Pluto is up to having five moons as well. So fits in with the outer planets in terms of having lots of moons, but very tiny, much smaller than our own moon. And is this? Okay. So much, much smaller than our own moon. Now, this is about when, when it would have been discovered, probably in the 1990s. We were getting, uh, telescopes were getting much more powerful, and we were beginning to discover uh, more objects out in what we call the Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt is right out beyond the edge of Neptune, goes out beyond that, and contains a lot of objects, much like Pluto. In fact, Eris is a little bit larger than Pluto. This is Eris, 
and its moon. Again, not a beautiful image. We're sitting here struggling to look at something smaller than our moon from many, many times further away. So the best images that we can get are still showing them as really you know, little tiny objects. But Eris is actually a little bit bigger than Pluto. And we now know hundreds of these objects. So there's a lot of objects out there like, like Pluto. So one of the reasons that we don't classify that Pluto is no longer classified as a planet. So this is Eris and Dysnomia as the two, two objects that we're seeing here, which is again another one of those Kuiper Belt objects, an object very similar to Pluto. Now, am I on to yes. Plutoids, okay. So here are some of them now. We call some of these Plutoids, the objects that are out beyond Pluto. Um, we also classify Pluto as a dwarf planet. Not quite a planet. And that's because um, about eight years ago we actually defined what a planet was for the first time. A planet had never been defined before, really. What is a planet? Is it something orbiting around the sun? Is that all that you need to be a planet? Does it have to have any other properties? Well, we would never really defined you know, what a planet is before. So what things does a planet need to do? Well, I told you one already, right? A planet has to orbit the sun. If it doesn't orbit the sun, it doesn't matter how big an object orbiting Jupiter is, and one of, those, one of those moons is larger than Mercury, if it's not orbiting the sun, we're not going to classify it as a planet. Okay? Pluto's good there. Pluto does orbit the sun. Two, it has to be a spherical shape. Meaning that it's large enough gravitationally. It has enough gravity to pull out any imperfections and pull it into a spherical shape. Pluto's good there too. Pluto does orbit the sun. It does have a spherical shape. These two define what we mean by a dwarf planet. A dwarf planet meets those two. In order to be a planet, you've got to do one more thing. One more thing was what was defined. And you have to be able to clear your orbit of debris. That's where Pluto misses. Pluto is not big enough gravitationally to be able to clear its orbit. Right around Jupiter, except for the moons orbiting it, which are okay, there's not a lot of other big objects orbiting around. You, know, you don't have a lot of Jupiters orbiting around Jupiter or even Earths orbiting around the Jupiter area out there. Jupiter has cleared all those off. It's either collected them into itself, right? it's connected them gravitationally, or it's flung them out of the solar system altogether. Pluto orbits out in the Kuiper Belt with a lot of other objects. Eris being one, but there are several others named there. Maki Maki, Haumea, etc. A whole bunch of them there that have been discovered now that are similar in size to Pluto. So Pluto has not been able to clear its orbit. It's got a lot of other objects there. Nothing big enough was able to do that. The same thing happened in the asteroid belt. There's a large asteroid, Ceres, the largest of the asteroids. It was not able to clear its, its, uh, its area. So it is also classified now as a dwarf planet. So Pluto, Eris, Ceres are a couple of the dwarf planets. And there's a couple more that have been found now that are spherical, like Makemake. We have about five or so, five or six dwarf planets that are classified now. The very largest objects, not quite a planet, not quite able to clear their orbit of debris, but do meet these first two properties. Things that just orbit the sun but maybe can't pull themselves into a spherical shape would be what's left as the asteroids and the other Kuiper Belt objects. If they don't have enough gravity to do that, that would be the asteroids and the Kuiper Belt objects. Whether they're close in or further away would be those kind of things. All right, last one. Nope, that is the last one there. I was going to say, I thought I had one more, but no, that is it. So I just want a little bit, I'd like to go over a little bit about why Pluto is no longer classified as a planet. Not because astronomers hated Pluto, but because they really defined for the first time what a planet is, and that had never been done before. And in fact, when Ceres was discovered, the largest asteroid, it was initially classified as a planet. 
No? So we had another planet discovered there. We discovered uh, just a few decades before that Uranus had been discovered. So we had one more planet. And then as we started to find more and more asteroids, it eventually got demoted and became, instead of being the smallest of the planets, became the largest of the asteroids. Now Ceres has been re-promoted to dwarf planet. So it's gone from asteroid to dwarf planet. At the same time, Pluto went from planet down to dwarf planet. So, our whirlwind tour of the solar system. Question? Yes, sir. Is that the furthest we've been like, out, outside of Pluto? The furthest we've been? Yeah. To actually visit an object, Pluto will be the furthest one that we actually visit. Now the spacecraft like Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are actually much further out than that now. They've traveled a lot further beyond, but they haven't actually flown by any of the objects. They're just traveling out into space now. So they're not going to actually fly by anything else. But they're further away. They're actually the most distant objects from the Earth. Are they still like sending pictures back? Or? No. They're not, I don't think there's enough power to run a camera on them anymore. They can, they can communicate and they can send uh, some sort of detectors as to like the number of particles they're detecting, how often they're getting hit, what kind of particles they're detecting. And they do that. In fact, the one, Voyager 1, has just reached what is classified as interstellar space. It's actually gotten beyond the influence of the sun, sun's, gra sun's gravity, sun's magnetic field. It's gotten beyond all that very recently. But not able to send pictures back. Honestly, there wouldn't be a lot for them to photograph. It's so empty out there, you'd just be taking pictures of empty space. So unless they happen to fly by you know, one of these other objects. But the odds of that, when you think about these things being you know, much smaller than our own moon, the odds that you're just going to happen to fly by one if you didn't plan it are essentially zero. All right, well, then let's.